Okay, good, good, good. All right, excellent. Well, again, uh, it is good to be here with you, and it's um, great to uh, at least apparently uh, be emerging out of these COVID times. Uh, who knows what's going to come along a, a bit later, but for right now, things are looking um, pretty good, and it's great uh, to be here uh, in person uh, for the most part uh, without masks and and uh, so it's uh, it's good to, that the uh, the Lord has uh, guided us uh, through this. This morning, um, I have a particular message um, on my heart, and it comes from a couple of passages in Isaiah seven and eight. And let me to read adjust this a little higher. Okay. Hope that's better. You will find out. Okay, all right, good, good. All right, so uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, that's fine. Um, they, the passages will be on the, the screen, so you have your, uh, your options there. But um, I'm going to be speaking this morning on conspiracy theory. How's that for a title, huh? We've had all kinds of conspiracies that have been out there in the public um, media uh, and um, just all kinds of discussions about who's conspiring against who and do these conspiracy theories really point to reality and things like that. Well, I'm going to talk about one uh, particular set of conspiracy theories uh, this morning by way of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8. So um, let's start reading, first of all, uh, in Isaiah 7, and I will um, uh, be calling attention to a whole bunch of things as we go along. Instead of reading the passage all at one time, we'll go through it, and I'll, um, I'll make some comments as we re read through. So in Isaiah 11, uh, first of all, we have in this very first verse a kind of a summary statement of what's going to come afterwards. So the summary statement reads like this. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now there's a lot of names there, a lot of places, a lot of kings mentioned. I'm going to explain those for you. But for right now, just note that is a summary statement. It's just saying this is what happened. And then verse 2 begins to unfold uh, what is uh, summarized in verse 1. Verse 2 reads like this. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Now, in order to help us better understand this, uh, I've got a couple of maps for you this morning. So we'll look at the first one now. Uh, now this map is in nice uh, pastel colors. Uh, I sort of refer to it as a Care Bears map. Uh, it's got those nice pastel, so it's, it's fairly simple but you'll see three basic entities there. 
up at the very top on that map in, I guess it's kind of pink, uh, is the country of Aram, which is where modern day Syria uh, is today. So Aram is one of the countries mentioned and there is a king there and his name is Rezin or Rezin, but I just say Rezin. And then right below Aram, in kind of a yellowish uh, area, is the country of Israel. And Israel um, is in between Aram and the country below, also in yellowish tones, called Judah. So we've got Aram, Israel, and Judah. So that's your pastel map, not so complicated. I've also had to take that map and kind of draw it out a bit to the sides uh, so it would cover more of the slide area. So it's a bit distorted, it's much narrower than that actually. And you'll see that on another slide. Now, um, let me just explain who these parties are. So when we go to the next slide here, let me give some history here first of all. 300 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and finally went into the Promised Land and conquered it. For 300 years, they were ruled by local judges, local military chieftains. But finally, after 300 years or so, they decided, we want to have a king who will rule over us. Now, Samuel the prophet and God himself warned about the problems with having a king, but nevertheless, God gave them a king. So first, there was Saul. He reigned for 40 years. Then there was David. He reigned for 40 years. And then there was Solomon, and he reigned for 40 years. After Solomon died, Solomon's son Rehoboam should have become the new king over all of Israel, but he made some very stupid mistakes. And as a result, Israel was no longer a united kingdom. It split up. So you have a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And for the next 300 years, you have this divided kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Now, Judah was fairly stable in terms of its politics. Israel was not. Now, here is an interesting tidbit for you. How do you become king? Well, in Judah, it was a fairly regular thing. First of all, you get born as the son of a king. And then that king, your father, dies and then you take his place. And that happened for almost every single king in the southern kingdom in Judah. There's a king, he dies, he has a son, and the son takes his place. That's how you become king in Judah. But in Israel, it was a different story. And to maybe exaggerate just a bit, the way you became king in the northern kingdom was like this. There is a king, you kill him, you take his place, and now you're king. And then someone kills you, and you die, and someone takes your place, and they become king. 
Well, that's the way it happened in the north. Now, maybe it wasn't always like that, but it was pretty close. So Israel and Judah were two very different kingdoms. Israel was a bit more wicked. Judah was wicked as well, but they were better than Israel was. They were, they were more godly than the northern kingdom was. So when we come to this passage here in Isaiah 7, here is the story. There is a southern kingdom called Judah. The king of that southern kingdom is Ahaz. He's not a very good king. In fact, he's a wicked king. But he's better than the kings in the north. And he reigns from Jerusalem. That's, that's the capital. Then the text refers to Israel. And the king in Israel is named Pekah. And he reigns in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And sometimes Ephraim becomes a kind of a code word for the northern kingdom. And then finally, the other party in this whole scenario, this whole um, conspiracy that takes place is Aram. Aram is the northern uh, a king, a kingdom north of Israel. But Aram is not a Jewish kingdom. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the Arameans. It's, they don't worship God at all. They don't worship Yahweh at all. The king there is a guy named Rezin or Rezin, and the capital is Damascus. Now there's one other party that we haven't come to yet as far as reading about him, one other party, uh, and that is the son of Tabeel. Um, I'll say something more about him in just, just a few minutes. So uh, that's, the, that's, the, uh, that's the parties. So keep that in mind. Aram, Judah, I'm sorry, Aram, Israel, Judah, and then Rezin, Pekah, and Ahaz. And Aram and Israel have formed an alliance to attack Judah. Now think about what that means. Israel and Judah are brothers. They're all sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They should not be fighting each other. But Israel is attacking Judah, and they even get a foreign country to help them attack Judah. Things are not going to come good out of this. Okay? All right, now, uh, I have another map for you there. It's a little bit more complicated. It's not quite the pastels you might be wanting, uh, but nevertheless, you've got a, a Ram in the north in yellow, uh, Israel in the middle uh, in the green, and then in the purple is Judah. Now, let's keep reading, starting at verse 3 again. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Sher Joshub. Go to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin. Notice that word plot. Synonym for the word conspire or conspiracy. Aram, 
Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Now, we don't know who this son of Tabeel is. Um, we don't, just don't have any good idea. But the whole thing, the whole idea here was that Israel and Aram were going to attack Judah, remove Ahaz from his throne, and put someone else there called the son of Tabeel. And this Tabeel figure would be their puppet king ruling over Judah in the south. It goes on to say this, Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, that's Pekah, and then Isaiah says to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, what is Isaiah saying when he says this to Ahaz? Well, what he is saying to Ahaz is this. Okay, we know. Pekah and Israel and Rezin and Aram have conspired to attack you. But the Lord wants to assure you what they want to do will not take place. It will not happen. And in fact, those two kingdoms are going to come to a very bad end. And then Isaiah says to Ahaz, stand firm in your faith. And what does that mean for Ahaz? Well, we don't have a good clue of it here in this particular passage. But in a parallel passage, in 2 Kings, we find out how Ahaz was going to respond to this threat. And his response was going to be to send word way over there, further east, to the kingdom and the empire of Assyria. And Ahaz was going to ask Assyria, come help me fight against Israel and Aram. Well, Ahaz, in devising this plan, in devising this strategy, and getting another country to help him fight against Israel and Aram, was being just as wicked and evil and stupid as was Pekah, king of Judah. Ahab, or rather Ahaz, was also getting involved in a conspiracy theory. And Isaiah says to him, the Lord wants you to stand firm in your faith. Don't appeal to some pagan nation to come help you fight Israel. Don't do that. Stand firm in your faith and the Lord will rescue Judah. And then, notice what happens here. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Do you want to know that my word is true, Ahaz? Ask for a sign, ask for anything you want, and I'll perform it for you to assure you that the Lord is going to be with you. 
But then it says in verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds kind of pious, doesn't it? It sounds like the right thing to do. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. However, there's a basic rule in the Bible, and that is when God tells a prophet to tell someone what to do, they ought to do it. And Ahaz refuses. But he doesn't refuse out of faith. He refuses because he does not believe the Lord, the Lord's word through Isaiah. So, then Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Now, there's a lot more to that passage, but I'm, for my purpose this morning, I want us now to skip over to chapter 8 and verses 11 to 15. So starting at verse 11, and this is, what, this is again the word of Isaiah, but here he's speaking to his followers, his disciples, those who were aligned with him. And here's what he says. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. And the, here's what the Lord says. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to to dread. Now, if you read the commentaries in Isaiah, you'll find a whole bunch of different opinions as to what the conspiracy is that's being talked about in verse 11 when the Lord says, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. We don't know for sure what the conspiracy is. Is it the fact that Israel and Aram have gathered against Judah? Or is it the idea of supplying a puppet king, the son of Tabil, to replace Ahaz? Or is it Ahaz appealing to Assyria? Or is Isaiah being accused of a conspiracy against the, his own southern kingdom by his prophecies? What is the conspiracy? We don't know for sure, and, and there are other suggestions too. But in essence, in verse 13, when it says, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. The idea there is that it doesn't matter what the conspiracy is. Don't be afraid of it. Rather, if you want to be afraid of someone, well, the Lord is holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. If you want to place your fears in the right place, fear God, because he's the one who can actually follow through on his conspiracies. It goes on and it says, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble 
They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. In essence, what this passage is saying is for all the conspiracies that Israel and Aram and Judah and Ahaz and the son of Tabeel and whoever might engage in these conspiracies, they won't happen. They will be defeated because the Lord is a much better conspirator than they are. The Lord is a better planner of history than they are. I want you to think for a minute. Just, just, just picture this with me. You go down to the game store. What's, what's it called now? River City Games, I think it is. And you hunt all through the shelves and find a game and or try to find a game. And you finally find one. Hey, this sounds pretty good. And you bring it home. And then one evening while you're at home, God comes and he knocks on your door. And he walks, you welcome him in, of course. And he says to you, how are you doing? And you say, I'm doing just fine. And then you say, hey God, I got this game just recently. Would you like to play it with me? And the Lord says, what's the game called? And you say, the game is called conspiracy. And the way it works is this. We two play each other, and the one who comes up with the better conspiracy wins the game. And God says, you know what? That sounds right up my alley. Let's play. And so you play, and then after about 200 games, when you realize that you're not going to win one, you get a bit tired of that game. Well, the Lord is the one who proves to be the divine conspirator. Now, something like this also shows up, by the way, in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then, just to give you another reading of this, in Luke chapter 12, this is the way Jesus says it. Jesus says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The Lord is the one who is to be feared. So, I want to call attention to three particular ways in which the Lord is the divine conspirator. First of all, the Lord is the one who conspires against his enemies. Now, this morning, I woke up and um, woke up a little bit later than I intended to. Um, and I went to my room where I have my study and, and I went through my notes for the message and, and I said, well, huh, pretty good. And I have a normal routine in the morning where I go to that room and I read all the chapters that I want to read for that day in scripture, about four chapters. And I said, I don't think I have time to do it. But you know what? I decided to go ahead and read it anyway. 
And the very first chapter I read this morning was 2 Kings 15, where Pekah, the king of Israel, who was plotting to attack Judah, died. And why did he die? Because there was a conspiracy theory against him. <laughs> there was a coup attempt against him. Hosea rose up and said, I want to be king. I don't want Pekah to be king anymore. And Hosea killed him, assassinated him, and took his place as the king. And in that way, here it is. Pekah, who was going to, who had this conspiracy plan and was going to kill Ahaz and, and replace him with Tabeel, less than almost a year later, he himself is conspired against and replaced by Hosea, the new king of Israel. So the Lord carries out his conspiracy theories against his enemies. He makes their plans come to naught. He defeats them and he ruins their plots. But then there's a second way in which the Lord becomes a divine conspirator. And this was the way in which the Lord conspired in order to bring about our salvation. I'm going to read three passages to you from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's first recorded sermon on the day of Pentecost. Listen to what he says. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter says here, yes, you took Jesus, this righteous person. You nailed him to the cross. You engaged in this conspiracy against him to put him to death. But little did you know that God was the better conspirator. And he was using your actions to accomplish the redemption of the world. He handed Jesus over to you deliberately by his own foreknowledge in order to accomplish our salvation. And then in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 3, listen to these verses. Again, this is Peter preaching. Listen to what he says. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life but God raised him from the dead. 
And then Peter says this. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Peter says, you turned Jesus over to Pilate to be killed. You disowned him. You gave him up. But then Peter says, but everything you did was part of God's plan. This is how God fulfilled his promises in the Old Testament to send you his son, the Messiah, for your salvation. And then a third passage in Acts, Acts chapter 4. And this is the story about how Peter and John had been arrested and put in prison and then released. Listen to what happens. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And now they quote from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then, after quoting the psalm, they show how that psalm was fulfilled in their own days. In their prayer, they say this, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, in Jerusalem, to conspire, there's that word, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But then, notice what they say next. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, the Lord is the better conspirator. They conspired against Jesus, but God conspired to make what they did effect redemption and salvation for all those who would come to faith in Christ Jesus. And then, one more conspiracy theory to entail here, to entertain, and that is the Lord's conspiracy regarding you and me. And we read about it in Romans chapter 8. Listen to what God does in your life and my life. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. The God who foils the plans and the plots and the conspiracies of his enemies. The God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to be crucified for us in that divine conspiracy to achieve our redemption and our salvation also orders all the events and the happenings and what looks like the chance things that happen in our lives. He is the divine conspirator. And even right now, he is conspiring to make you conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And all those things that happen to you, things that you lament at and cry about and complain about, rightly so, are nevertheless the very things that God has put into your life to make you holy. He is indeed the divine conspirator. He is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And yet, by the love of God shed abroad in your heart, that fear, that dread can go away because you know that you have a father who has only your best interests at his heart. May the Lord bless you. Our Father, thank you so much that you foil the plans of the nations, that you, in your wisdom and determination and sovereign plan, accomplished our redemption, even through the most horrible event that ever occurred in all of human history, the crucifixion of your Son. And we believe that even right now, you are working in our lives for our good and your glory. Thank you so much for your goodness, your love, and your sovereign plan over our lives. And help us to realize that even when things don't look so great, even then, all things work together for our good and your glory. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.